You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is Lecture 6, given on November 2, 1910, entitled The Activities of Human Soul Forces. We concluded yesterday's observations on psychosophy by characterizing the soul's ebb and flow and how it may be attributed to its two essential elements, judging and the inner experience of love and hate. We also pointed out that sensations, given through our senses, emerge and fill the soul life like waves that continually rise and fall on the sea. It was further indicated that there is one aspect that arises in this restless sea that is radically different from everything else we experience while awake to the external world. We experience these sensations when we have contact with the outer world. They then transform themselves in us in such a way that they live on in us. As we examine the tide of experience arising through the influences of our senses, we become aware of a perception that is very different from any other. All other perceptions in ordinary life are caused by outer stimuli that then go through a process within us. From perceptions they become sensations and live on in what the sensations leave behind in us. Perception of the I, capital, is completely different, however. It surfaces among the other externally caused sensations and is in a certain sense always present during our soul life. Perception of the I differs in that it cannot be caused from outside. Thus there is a contrast in our soul life between the sensation of the I and all other soul experiences. The mysteries hidden behind this contrast will become apparent in the course of these lectures. We must focus on the contrast right from the beginning to get a feeling for those mysteries. With all the rest of our experience, we depend, as it were, on the external world and we insert our I-perception into the rest of our experience. Using this completely abstract contrast, we can learn to sense that that which surges up and down in the soul comes from two directions. It is important that we look with sensitivity at this human soul life, both in an abstract way and concretely with both a smaller and a larger perspective, since only the study of human soul life will illumine all other soul life.
Essentially, human soul life is anything but unified. It is more like a dramatic battlefield where opposites struggle continually. Anyone who listens with sensitivity and feeling to this soul life will certainly notice its dramatic character. When confronted by these opposing forces in the human soul, people in fact feel a lack of control, a passivity. The greatest geniuses, as well as the least outstanding of individuals, are subject to these two opposing natures in the soul's life. Yesterday I began with a poem by Goethe who, to give you a feeling for the contradictions that are active in the human soul, even within the soul of the greatest genius. If after hearing that poem you had looked it up in a Goethe anthology, you would, ha- you would have had a peculiar feeling which would serve as a good foundation for this whole lecture cycle. <clears throat> I want to describe that feeling in order to avoid considering soul life abstractly and to bring life blood into it and to enter into what lives in the soul. If you had looked up the Goethe poem that was recited yesterday, you might have said, well, this is a completely different version. What I see here in Goethe's works is not what I heard. Something was indeed changed for the recitation, which from an academic perspective would be tremendously uncaring and barbarous. The poem was specially prepared and not read according to Goethe's text. Certain parts were changed and others omitted, so that a very different impression was created. Of course, this cannot be done in the presence of literature professors, but it is all right when it is done for a very specific purpose. In our case, the purpose was to deepen our perspective of the drama in the human soul. Goethe wrote The Eternal Jew in his very early youth, but if Goethe at a more advanced age could have looked over the poem as recited here, he might have said, I can stand behind that. He would have accepted our changes and rejected what we omitted yesterday. He might have admitted to being somewhat ashamed of what he had originally written. Anyone who shares my own unlimited admiration for Goethe might be allowed to speak as I must today about his eternal Jew. It was a product of his early youth, and his youthfulness is expressed there because it was produced when he was still a real good-for-nothing, someone from whom nothing could possibly be learned. Is it wrong to say that in certain respects nothing could be learned from Goethe? We can honestly say that at the time he could not even spell correctly. Why, then, may we not be allowed to say that certain aspects of the eternal Jew are useless? We certainly cannot condone the rampant poor taste these days that allows when possible the light of day to shine on all the earliest forms of the works of every great artist. We merely expose our own deficiencies in this way. In this youthful poem there is something that is not really Goethe himself. Many ideas rumbled around in his youthful soul, influenced by his surroundings. But the nature of his environment is unimportant to us and concerns only him. Elements were brought together within Goethe's soul that we might refer to as a marriage between the temporal and the eternally divine that produced an enduring offspring for all of humanity. 
It is valuable to us and to everyone who will come after us. These two elements, the one that concerned only Goethe and the one that concerns us and all following generations, were disentangled in yesterday's recitation. These two Goethean souls were cut apart. That which lived in the young Goethe and remained dominant within him until the end of his life was separated from what lived in him only during his youth and later died out. We see here how forces play into genius and ripen only with time. And we see that there are other external forces that influenced Goethe. When we view Goethe's youthful soul, it really seems like a battlefield for the struggle between the heroic Goethe, what accompanied him throughout his life as the actual bearer of his genius, and an element in his soul that he fought against. If this battle had not taken place, Goethe would not have become Goethe. Here is a clear example of opposites, of contrary forces active in the soul. The soul cannot be a homogeneous entity. It would be unable to progress any further. It is vital that we begin by gaining a feeling for this polarity or contradiction in the soul life. If we do not have this feeling, we will not be able to value rightly what is said precisely with regard to the soul life. When we have such a typical soul life as Goethe's, we look at it as if at a drama and attempt to approach it with a kind of shy reverence, because in that one incarnation, in the battle that unfolds as soul life, we see the true content, the real destiny of the individual soul life. There is still another aspect that we may point out in this soul drama. Let us take another look at the contradictions in Goethe's soul life as they appeared spiritually through yesterday's recitation and through my explanation. What may, what may we conclude? We find that in his later years Goethe followed only one of the impulses discussed yesterday. Goethe was subjected was subjected involuntarily to these two forces in his soul throughout his life. All human beings, as soul beings, are not merely masters of themselves, but are also subjected to something within that has power over them and that cannot be grasped knowingly up front. If Goethe, when he wrote, title, The Eternal Jew, had embraced everything in his soul that could have been embraced, this poem would have been more artistic and, little, and a little closer to the version recited yesterday, but certainly not as it appears in Goethe anthologies. People are given over to their soul lives. There is an aspect there that is essentially just as external to our soul life as anything else around us. When we encounter a red rose, we are powerless to see it any differently. The rose forces us to retain the redness in our image of it. Likewise, there is something that makes it necessary to live out the drama of the soul in a very specific way. In terms of our sense impressions, the outer world dictates to us. We must recognize a similar inner master in our soul life when we examine its polarities and observe how the soul progresses in time from day to day, year to year, and from one stage of life to the next, 
seeing how it becomes richer as it is driven forward through an inner force. You can see in these simple concrete examples, which have been kept entirely at the physical level, that because of the nature of sense perception, we must acknowledge an external force or master in external life and an internal master within ourselves. No matter where we are in space, the outer world controls our sense perceptions. It would merely be a fantasy if we refused to recognize this. As we progress inwardly, we must look at the dramatic contradictions of our soul life. We need to recognize that we are subject to a master there, just as we are in the external world, a master who makes sure we have a different soul life at seven years of age, for example, than at twenty, thirty, or later. This example is given at the outset to illustrate much of what we will consider later. In the final analysis, this soul drama, concretely demonstrated in Goethe, is made up only of the two elements of the soul life, of judging or reasoning, and the phenomena of love and hate. As I said yesterday, judging leads to visualization, whereas love and hate come from desire. You might say that my assertion that judging leads to visualization contradicts the simple fact that mental images originate from sense impressions forced on us from the outer world. When we see a rose and have the impression of red, we visualize red without any reasoning involved. You could further object that judging thus does not lead to a mental image, but it is really the other way around. Visualization comes first and reason follows based on the mental image. Hold on to this apparent contradiction for a moment. It is not easy to resolve or to see through. We must combine several of the insights we can glean from observing soul life to find the key to this apparent contradiction. First, it is important to note that mental images really do have an existence of their own in soul life. They have their own life. Please understand the full significance of that statement. Visualizations are like parasites, like living beings in the soul that lead their own existence there. <clears throat> On the other hand, desiring also has its own existence in the soul. The soul is really subject to the independent mental images and to longings and desires. You can easily see that mental images live a life of their own in our souls when you consider, for example, that the soul is powerless to easily call a previously formed mental image back into memory. A mental image formed only yesterday may sometimes refuse strongly to allow itself to be recaptured. In ordinary life we then say that we have forgotten that it simply will not rise to the surface and resists recall. A battle takes place between something that lives in us as an undeniable soul power, wanting to force an image to the surface, and something else that is also present in the soul. A battle is waged in our souls with the mental image, though it will eventually return without any external cause. It was present all the time, 
but refused to reveal itself at the desired moment. You know, further, that this battle between our own soul forces and the mental image to be called up is different with different human individualities. The mental images, indeed, live in the soul, but as opponents, so to speak, of our own soul forces, the difference between these two is frighteningly great. Some people, for example, never seem to suffer the embarrassment of being unable to recall what lives in their souls when needed. Such people can summon, in an instant, all their memories and knowledge. On the other hand, there are those so incapacitated by forgetfulness that they have absolutely no power over their reservoir of images and they cannot recall them to consciousness. A true psychologist finds it very important to know how quickly a person can remember, the speed with which the images of past experiences assert themselves against the forces trying to recall them. Psychologists use this as a measure of a deeper element in the being of the human. They see evidence of inner health or illness in the degree that we are removed from our mental images. Since the nuances of health and illness blend into one another at their extremes, we may say that from a psychologist's viewpoint, we have subtle indications right into the physical nature of the human constitution in these intimate details. We can even assess just where an individual has a problem by the way a soul must battle with mental images in order to remember them. We look, as it were, right through the soul into something that is other than soul when we understand the soul's experience in battling with the realm of mental images. Another way of picturing the way mental images lead a life of their own in our souls is to the fact that we cannot completely control the mental images we have at any given moment. We are at their mercy. Certain experiences can convince us of this. It depends on us, on the nature of our soul life, whether or not we understand someone who is speaking with us, for example. You understand me when I am lecturing to you. If, however, you were to bring a person who is unfamiliar with such matters to hear my lectures, such a person would probably get nothing from them, regardless of how well educated that individual might be. Why is this? It is because you have been acquiring the needed mental images over a period of time. You have built up mental images in your souls that now come to meet the new ones in today's talk. Here you have an example of how we really have very little control over our soul life. There is no point in trying to understand something for which we lack a store of background images. In this case, image comes to meet image. If you observe your soul life, you will be able to notice that your I plays an extremely minimal role in it. You have the best opportunity to forget your I while you are listening to something that fascinates you. The more intently you listen, the more you forget your I. Try, after the lecture, to recall such a moment when you were absorbed in something you understood. 
you will discover that you must confirm that something was happening in you with which your eye was not very involved, whereby it had indeed forgotten itself. At such times we say that we were as if given over to it, as if we had lost ourselves. We always lose ourselves when we understand something particularly well. We shut out our eye and hold our reservoir of images up to meet those entering the soul. A sort of battle ensues between the old and the new, and we ourselves become the battleground for their confrontation. In relation to our soul life, something very important depends on whether or not we already have the mental images needed to understand something. Imagine listening to some matter without already having the mental images needed to understand it. We listen, quote-unquote, unprepared, as they say. Then something peculiar happens. At the moment we listen unprepared, when the state of the soul life makes it impossible to understand, something demon-like approaches us from behind. What is it? It is the eye dwelling in our soul life. It appears to attack as if from behind. As long as we are absorbed, are lost to ourselves, it doesn't show itself. But it arises whenever we lack understanding. How does it announce itself there? Those who pay close attention to soul life notice soon notice that what plays into it brings it discomfort. The soul fills itself with some element that brings it discomfort. With this as a background, we may say that this discomfort shows that in the soul life the mental images already present affect new mental images trying to enter. Their way of acting is not a matter of indifference. It either brings a sense of comfort and satisfaction into soul life, or it brings exactly the opposite. Again, we see the degree to which we are given over to our mental images. Although it is not obvious, this is of vital importance to psychologists. This discomfort is a force created in the soul when confronted with the unfamiliar. It continues to act in the soul's life in such a way that it goes beyond that life and takes hold of an even deeper element of human nature. The results of this misunderstanding and discomfort can have a damaging consequence, even affecting the body's constitution. In diagnosing the finer degrees of sickness or health, those connected with the soul life, it is very important to notice whether or not patients understand the matters they must frequently contend with in life. Such considerations are far more important than is generally believed. Let us move on now. It was stated that our mental images have an independent life, that they are like beings within us. Further consideration will convince you of this. You will remember moments in your soul life when the external world seemed to have nothing at all to offer you, despite a desire on your part to be stimulated by it, to receive impressions, to experience something. It simply had nothing to offer. It passed you by without leaving any impressions. You then experience something as a result. Boredom. 
Boredom causes desire in the soul. It gives birth to a longing for impressions, and the soul life is surrendered to it. Yet there is nothing to satisfy that desire. Where does boredom originate? If you are truly a good observer of nature, you might have observed something not often noticed, that only a human being can become bored. Animals never become bored. Only superficial observers believe that such a thing is possible. You can even become aware of a strange aspect of human boredom. If you investigate the soul life of a simple, primitive people, you will find that they suffer far less boredom than is found among the more cultured people with their more complicated soul life. Those who go about the world and tend to be observant will notice that country people are much less prone to boredom than city dwellers. Of course, you should not think here of studying how bored city people become in the country, but only the degree of boredom country people experience in the country. Your attention should be on the more complex cultural conditioning of soul life. Thus there is a real difference in the degree to which human beings are prone to boredom. Then, too, boredom does not emerge from soul life without cause. Why are we bored? It is produced by the independent life of our mental images. The old mental images in us are the source of our desire for new impressions. They want to be re-enlivened and refreshed, to have new impressions. People have little control over boredom because mental images received in a previous life develop their own life in the soul and seek re-enlivenment. They develop desires. If they remain unsatisfied, their unsatisfied longing, an attribute that we must study in the soul life itself, is expressed as boredom. Therefore, people who have fewer mental images also have fewer desiring images. The fewer desires for new impressions they develop, the less bored they are. We should not conclude, however, that a lasting state of boredom characterizes a highly developed human being. Those who constantly yawn are not among the most highly developed in terms of soul life, though they are more developed than those who can never become bored because they have few mental images. Boredom can be cured, and when the soul has developed sufficiently, Boredom is no longer possible. Why are animals never bored? When the gates of their senses are open to their environment, animals continually receive impressions. Now picture those impressions. The soul life of an animal flows out to the environment and is stimulated. What goes on outside as a continuous external process keeps pace with the inner flow of animal experience. Animals are done with the one impression when a new one is presented to which they surrender themselves. Outer events, <coughs> excuse me, outer events and inner experience coincide. Coincide. The advantage we have over animals is that we can establish within ourselves a different measure of time. <coughs> the sequence of mental images that surfaces in our soul life can be based on a time element other than the one in our environment. 
we may happen to encounter something that has often left an impression with us. But a time comes when we close ourselves to it, we shut out the impression. It is as if our attention is withdrawn from the outer flow of time and events, and we do not accompany them inwardly. Time passes within us as well, but since it is without external impressions, it remains unfulfilled. As long as people have mental images from a previous life, they work into the time that is empty and in this way continue their activity in the soul. Consequently, the following might happen. Once again, imagine the soul experience of animals as it runs parallel to the outer flow of time. And there's a picture. An animal's inner soul life flows in such a way that it is given over to the outer flow of time or the perceptions of its own body. When, for example, an animal digests, the images that arise from within stimulate it inwardly. This is extraordinarily interesting to the animal. For it, the external flow of time has the effect of offering it constant inner stimulation. We can say that it is interested in every moment, which cannot be said of human beings. Outer objects can cease to interest us. Nevertheless, the flow of external time continues. Let us picture the inner soul life of the human being and the outer flow of time in relation to it. Human soul life is exposed repeatedly to the same external impressions to the point where they hold no further interest. Soul life then stops, and since time flows on with the soul life, that time remains empty, and we are bored. People are bored because of unfilled time. What works into this unfilled, excuse me, what works into these unfilled periods? It is the mental images of the past that have a longing but do not receive anything. While animals receive constant stimulation in the course of time, human beings develop between past and future longings for impressions as the result of mental images themselves demanding new content and enrichment. Human beings have an advantage over animals owing to the fact that our past mental images continue to live and develop a life of their own. Later I will point out what can cause illusions in this context. There is a cure for boredom, which is approximately as follows. Living in our continuing mental images are not only desires, but meaningful content as well, meaning that continues to live in the soul. This is what enables us to carry mental images acquired in the past <clears throat> into the future ourselves. When the mental images themselves bring something to us from the past, that is again the mark of higher soul development. It makes a great difference whether or not we possess mental images that continue to interest and fill our soul life in the future. Thus there is a stage beyond which one can be bored. But for those who fill themselves with meaningful mental images, such images continue to act in the future. 
This is the difference between those who can cure their boredom and those who cannot. Such an inability indicates the independent life of one's mental images, a life that cannot be controlled and to which one is subject. If we do no If we do not make certain that our mental representations have meaning, we become bored. Only through meaningful mental images can we protect ourselves from boredom. This is also immediately significant for psychologists, since ordinary human life demands a certain balance between fulfilling the soul's desires and external life in general. A bored soul empty of meaning, one that nevertheless continues to live with the flow of time, for time waits for no one, is poisonous also in a certain connection for the body. Excessive boredom leads to illness. The phrase bored to death reflects an appropriate sense of this fact. Those who suffer from boredom may not be killed instantly by it, but it does in fact work as a psychological toxin far beyond the confines of the soul. You may have a sense that the things you have heard today are simply pedantic explanations, but they will help us gain even deeper insight into the real life of the soul. Subtle distinctions are vital to familiarizing ourselves with the wonderful drama of the soul, where the I plays the heroic, central role. There is, quote-unquote, someone hidden in the soul life of everyone, one who is wiser than we ordinarily are. If this was not true, the outlook for human life would be very grim. When we examine the way various people view matters, they seem to have the most extraordinary notions about the nature of the soul, the body, and the spirit, subjects over which a great deal of confusion rules. It is especially interesting that during ancient times, when external science was based more on clairvoyance, people made the appropriate distinctions among the parts played by the body, soul, and spirit in the human being. Then, at a relatively early point in time, a church council felt impelled to do away with the spirit. The church established a permanent dogma that human beings consist only of body and soul. Yes, the spirit was, in fact, abolished. If you were to acquaint yourselves with the dogmatism of the church, you would understand the consequences of that action. A few individuals, of course, saw that there was something people had to refer to as spirit, but they were the most vehement heretics. Anyone who could not make do with body and soul and consequently introduced spirit as a third component was considered a monstrous heretic. This was a consequence of the uncertainty that prevailed about whether or not it was justified to speak of body, soul, and spirit. From the moment when one ceased to speak of body, soul, and spirit, confusion set in. But people tend toward confusion about everything. When people no longer really know what spirit and soul are, something else can disappear. That is how the clear view of spiritual life disappeared. Even though human beings are always prone to the error of failing to distinguish properly, we can say that something in the nature of a good spirit keeps watch over humanity, 
and that there is a dim feeling for the truth. We are able to have a dim feeling of the truth because something like the spirit of language is active in our environment. Language is really wiser than human beings. People ruin much of language, but language does not allow everything related to it to be spoiled. It is more correct and sensible than the average individual. Language, through its stimulation and the impressions it makes on the human soul, can sometimes have a very proper effect. People, on the other hand, make errors when they bring their judging to it. I would like to give you an example of how we surrender ourselves to language and yet feel and sense something that is right. Imagine that you stand before three things, first a tree, second a bell, and third a human being. You begin to judge according to what the outer world presents, based on your immediate sense impressions. You activate your soul life. Judging is an activity that takes place in the soul. You make judgments about the tree, then the bell, and then the person. You look at the tree. It is green. You make a judgment that is expressed in accordance with the genius of language with the sentence, The tree is green. Now let us assume that you want to express some fact about the bell as a result of your sense impression, that is, that the bell is ringing and producing a sound. At the moment when the bell is ringing, you express your perception with a speech judgment. The bell rings. You have expressed the tree's greenness with the words, The tree is green, and your your experience of the bell with the words, The bell rings. Now, let us look at the person. The person speaks. You experience this fact and clothe your outer impression with the words, The person speaks. Now let us look at all three judgments. The tree is green, the bell rings, and the person speaks. What has arisen in these three? All three have to do with sense impressions. You will have the feeling that each of the three sense impressions, when compared with the spoken judgments, emerges as something quite different. In considering the first judgment, you must ask what it really expresses. It expresses a fact that through the form of judgment is related. It expresses a fact that through the form of judgment is related to space. In saying that the tree is green, I am expressing a spatial fact, one that is true now and will remain the same any number of hours from now. It is something enduring. Now take the next judgment, the bell rings. Does that express anything existing in space? It does not. Instead of expressing something spatial, it describes something occurring in time, something in the process of becoming, something in a state of flux. Consequently, and because the genius of language is so wise, you can never speak in the same way about spatial facts as you do about what takes place in time. In terms of judging, language does not allow you to use a verb directly in describing a tree in space. One must resort to an auxiliary verb, is, one that helps us live in time with our speech. Thus one says, the tree is green. You are allowed to use a verb to express something very similar, but with a different emphasis, saying, the tree greens. In that instance, however, one is shifting to a description of something taking place in time. 
Where the genius of language allows a shift from space to time, one must shift to what proceeds in, in time, to what is becoming, to the arising of greenness. A true genius, a, a wonderful genius, is at work in language. As human beings we have damaged it in many ways, but it remains a fact that language simply does not allow us to directly use verbs for spatial matters. Footnote 1. In German the word for verb, Zeitwort, is literally time word. End of footnote. In the case of the second judgment where a process of becoming is involved, we cannot express such a process with is, saying the bell is rings, which distorts the meaning. To rewrite or paraphrase in such a way ruins language. Footnote. In English one may say the bell is ringing. In German, however, leutend, ringing, becomes an adjective rather than a verb. And a footnote. Footnote. The genius of the English language does allow for a combination of space and time within verb forms. And a footnote. As for the third judgment, one sense, excuse me, as for the third judgment, one's sense perception is expressed by the verb speaks. Consider for just a moment the difference between the judgments. The bell rings and the person speaks. In the first, the sound is the important thing and is expressed with the judgment. If I say the person speaks, however, I am making a statement that does not contain that which is of consequence. In this case, the important thing is not in the speaks, but in what is being said. The stimulus to sense perception expressed in the verb speaks is not what holds our interest in this instance, but rather the content, the what, expressed with the verb. With the language you stop short of the content there. Why, in the case of the bell rings, do you not stop short? And why does the genius of language stop short of content in saying the person speaks? Why do we stop short of what matters to us? It is because we want to confront the living soul directly. In this instance, the genius of language has supplied a word, speaks, that stops short of meaning and merely characterizes something external that confronts us. In the case of the bell, the word rings conveys the bell's metallic inner quality. When you confront a living human being having inner soul qualities, you guard against bringing that inner quality into the word. In the genius of language, there is a tangible difference between what refers to place or space, a process or becoming, and the inner aspect of the soul. When we want to describe this from outside, we stop short of the inner aspect, that which matters, in the language as if out of a shy reverence. Through speaking we recognize the inner soul aspect. In the course of these lectures we will see that it is indeed important to lift ourselves to a certain height of feeling, that we conceive of the soul as a self-contained realm, something that surges from its center, breaking against its confines. When we describe the soul from outside, the genius of language forces us in a certain way 
to stop short of its inner being. It is important that we learn to understand the soul in its true nature as a self-contained inner being and become aware that whatever must approach it from outside confronts an inner resistance coming from it. We should thus imagine the soul as a circle approached from its surroundings by sense experiences and filled internally with surging soul life. As we saw today, this inner life of the soul is by no means independent. It experiences inwardly its own life of mental images, the reservoir of mental images. Those images absorbed from without into the soul's inner life continue to lead an existence in the flow of time. We will see in the coming days how this self-contained life of mental images enclosed within the boundaries of the soul is the source of both our greatest bliss and our deepest suffering to the extent that they originate in the soul. We will see too how the spirit is the greatest healer of the pain and suffering mental images cause in our souls. We may also say that just as hunger must be stilled in external bodily life and that such stilling is healthy, the same must be done for the inner life of the soul. Mental images require, in a certain way, inner nourishment through other mental images. When we overburden ourselves by eating too much, our health is undermined. Thus the destiny of the soul plays out in such a way that new mental images may promote health or illness. We will see how the spirit functions not only as a health giver, in terms of our hunger for new mental images, but also as healer when we suffer from an excess of them. The end of Lecture 6